Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I had never tried online dating. I'd never had a reason to. Usually my luck with guys was pretty decent, and even when it wasn't, I was just fine doing my own thing. After my last relationship fizzled out, I decided to avoid playing the dating game for a while. I had other things I wanted to devote my energy to, like a promotion at work that was being dangled promisingly in front of me. A while turned into a few years of chronic singledom, which was apparently becoming an issue to everyone but me, and before I knew it, I was pushing spinsterhood at the ripe old age of 29. My family and friends had the good grace not to bring up their concerns directly, but when mom started mentioning nice young men she'd met at church, I knew things were getting critical. Besides, it had been kind of a long time, hadn't it? Before mom could start handing out my number like Halloween candy, I took the initiative to log on to one of those free dating sites and set up a profile. I wasn't expecting much. We didn't exactly live in a big city and I felt I'd exhausted the pool of eligible bachelors who might interest me, but I could at least point to it as a sign of my efforts to rekindle a love life. I set up a few rules regarding who I might respond to. No one or two-worded messages. His profile had to be completely filled out. There had to be at least a couple of common interests, and he had to have more than one picture. I even included these rules on my page. Simple, right? Yeah, well, I still got a variety of messages ranging from, Hey baby, to, You look hot, what's your number? And my faith in internet dating dwindled even more. I did go out with a couple of guys, but it felt forced and awkward, and I always left early with some half-hearted excuse. The guys must have gotten the message because they never tried to call again. On the car ride home from another failed attempt that ended with a mid-date dash, I called my best friend to fill her in. So what's wrong with this one? Eva asked as soon as she answered. He was fine, I said. Just really awkward. He's never even kissed a girl. He said he's waiting for a fairy tale moment. You sure know how to pick him, Jules. He was good looking and funny through text. That's how they get you, she laughed. We chatted until I got home and I told her I had to go to make dinner. You wouldn't have to if you'd stuck it out. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Tell Pete I said hi and I'm still waiting for him to wise up and leave you so we can run away together. Making dinner actually meant eating the leftover Chinese that was still in my fridge from the last date night. A quick change into my comfiest oversized pajamas and I was ready for an evening of Netflix binging. On a whim, I logged onto the dating site first and saw that I had some new messages. ReliableGuy81 said that I looked like I was the kind of girl who enjoyed having fun with a winky face. Delete. The Dan Man just asked if I wanted to chat. Delete. Ready to make it three for three, I clicked on the message from I'm not good at this dating thing and was surprised to see that he actually had something to say. Hi, mother of puppies. My name's Scott, and as the username implies, I'm really not good at this whole dating thing. 
I saw your name, though, and thought it seemed like kind of a reference to my favorite show, so I checked your profile. Another Game of Thrones fan. Not that that's really rare, but it's always nice to see. Is the Mother of Dragons your favorite character? Okay, so we had a common interest. He was trying to initiate real conversation with a question, and he could write properly. Good start. Not good. Interested, I went to his profile and read through his bio. He lived in the next town over and was a PhD student working on a degree in English literature, his focus being medieval lit. If that wasn't dorky enough, he loved attending Renaissance festivals in costume, going to conventions, and reading whatever fantasy novels he could get his hands on. His pictures showed him to be a tall man with a mop of reddish-brown hair, glasses, and a cheerful smile. He was a little on the nerdy side, but definitely cute. I shot a response and returned to my previously scheduled plans with Jessica Jones. It was late by that time, and I was ready for bed, but I was curious as to whether he had replied. Sure enough, when I checked, the envelope had turned red, and a message from I'm not good at this dating thing was waiting for me. Thanks for the answer, Juliana. I'm going to have to disagree and say that Tyrion is the best and should be the one ruling the Seven Kingdoms. You watch Jessica Jones? Cool. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard good things. Might have to check it out. Any other recommendations? Our TV talk eventually branched into other subjects, other hobbies, jobs, pets, families. Scott was an only child. He dreamed of one day traveling the world, but ideally, he'd always return to his town to be near his parents as they were close. He was charming and respectful and seemed genuinely interested in what I had to say. We gradually moved from the dating site to a chat app, and then, when I felt comfortable enough, a month or so later, we traded numbers. Every time my phone chirped with a new text or it rang and his name flashed across my screen, a giddy thrill would shoot through me. I felt like a high school girl with a crush. When I received a text at work saying he'd been in a bad car accident, I immediately tried to call. He didn't answer, and it was almost 45 minutes before I next heard from him. He sent another text saying that he was on his way to the hospital, but he called me when he got the chance. I was racked with concern and horribly distracted while I waited. I don't think I actually got anything done, but luckily my supervisor didn't seem to notice. I went home and sat at my computer desk with the idea that watching something might distract me, but I spent the whole time staring at and checking my phone. Finally, at almost 11, he sent me a picture of himself in a hospital bed with a few band-aids on his face and a sling on his arm. He was still smiling, though, and he said he'd be on his way home shortly. I was so relieved that he was okay, but I still told him he was an ass for worrying me like that. My phone buzzed. Let me make it up to you. How? Let me take you to dinner. You said you wanted to try that Italian restaurant by me that I told you about, right? I hesitated. Sure, I had a lot of fun talking to him, and I thought I really liked him, but what if that changed in person? He must have interpreted my extended silence as discomfort because he followed up with, Only if you want. It's okay if you don't. Well, that clinched it for me. Let's do it. The only problem I had with the arrangement was that I'd have to pick him up. His car had been totaled in the accident, and he had no other way of getting to the restaurant. I told him that it made me a little uncomfortable since it was our first time meeting, so we agreed that I could stay in my car and call him when I arrived. That way, he said, 
You can always drive off if something doesn't feel right or you just don't like how I look. Because I was going to his house, I told Eva everything about the date and made sure she had copies of a few of his pictures, his full name, his address, and the restaurant address before I left. We scheduled a checkup text for 10 minutes past the hour. I'd have five minutes to respond with our code word for it's all good, or she'd call the police and tell them something was wrong. I felt like I'd taken decent precautions, so I dolled myself up and headed out to make the hour and a half drive to Scott's house. His house was exactly as he described it. I recognized the tall oak with the tire swing he told me to look out for and pulled over. Butterflies swarmed in my stomach, and I took a few steadying breaths before I called out to him. The phone rang once and immediately went to voicemail. I frowned at my cell like it was at fault and tried again. Same result. I leaned over to the passenger side and peered at the house. Lights were on. Someone was home. A third call. Still no answer. I texted Eva to let her know that I was there, but something was fishy. She told me to get out of there, but I was getting mad. I'd come all this way. I deserved an answer. I got out of my car and marched them to the front door, green just like he said, and rang the bell. I heard some voices within and then footsteps. A woman in her fifties opened the door just enough to poke her head out. Yes? She didn't look like she was expecting visitors. Hi, um, I said awkwardly. I'm here for Scott? I think you've got the wrong house, hon. Um, he told me 35 Maplewood? Then he must have told you wrong. There's no Scott here. As she moved to close the door, I held out a hand. Wait, do you know this guy? She eyeballed me suspiciously as I reached into my purse for my phone. I pulled up a picture of Scott, one in which he was sitting in a kitchen counter with a cat on his lap and held it out to her. She went very still. The color in her cheeks dulled to a grayish hue, and she looked from the phone to me and then back again. Where did you get that? Scott sent it to me, saying it was him. Well, I'm sorry. Her voice was choked. But that's not Scott. His name was David, and he passed away six months ago. Are you sure? I mean, maybe it just looks like him? She scowled at me and shook her head. David was my son. I took that picture only weeks before he was mur- She stopped herself cleared her throat, and stepped back. Before he was taken from us. Please excuse me. The door was slammed shut in my face. I climbed back into my car, bewildered, hurt, and very confused. I tried to call Scott again, and when that predictably failed, I sent Eva a text that I was on my way back home and I'd fill her in later. I even included the code word so she'd know it was really me. The drive was long and silent and unsettling. Where was Scott? Who was Scott? Why had he made me drive all the way out here to upset some poor woman still grieving for her son? 
The more I thought about it, the angrier I became. He made a fool out of me for who knows what reason, and now he was avoiding me. My usual spot outside my building was occupied, so I was forced to park across the street and stop the extra distance up to my apartment. As I was unlocking my door, my phone chirped. I dug roughly about for it, yanking it out. A message from Scott. Practically snarling over his behavior, I unlocked the phone to read his text. Thanks for coming and showing me the way home. I'll see you soon. It was followed by a picture of me from only moments before, walking into the front door of my apartment building. I held the phone in both hands and stared down at the picture for a long moment. The truth of the situation and the terrible implications didn't sink in right away. It had to be my imagination or something. Things like this didn't happen in real life, at least not my real life. I studied the picture again. That was definitely me in the same green dress I was still standing in, and that was definitely my apartment building, and it was definitely from Scott. My stomach lurched violently, like I'd just been pitched over the edge of a tall cliff, and I crawled through my bag to find my keys. I thought getting into my apartment and putting a deadbolt between me and the outside world would bring me some relief, but instead, I just felt alone in a place that had somehow become too big with too many dark shadows. I turned on every light, my TV, my computer, whatever I had that could make it illuminate and make noise. I sat in the middle of my living room, praying that my parents would pick up their phone. Hey, Julesy. I almost started sobbing at the sound of my dad's voice. What's up, kid? Can you and Mom come over? There was a short pause. You okay, Juliana? Yeah, uh, I think so, but could you come? I heard him tell Mom to get the car keys and the scratchy sound of the phone being shuffled from one ear to the other. We're on our way. What's wrong? I couldn't keep from crying anymore. I felt weak and childish, but I was terrified, and at almost 30 years old, all I wanted was my parents. I think someone followed me home and is sitting outside the building. Is your door locked? I made a sound indicating that it was. Okay, honey, you're okay, right? Another affirmative sniffle. Good. Call the cops. Now. We'll be there in five. Do not open the door to anyone except me. You understand? Okay, honey. You're okay. We're on our way. I didn't want him to hang up, but I knew he was right. Before the call ended, I heard him say that he was driving. I dialed 911 and repeated my story, tears and all, to a sympathetic dispatcher who assured me she had a car en route. She asked me if I needed her to stay on the line, but I declined. I wasn't in immediate danger, and I wanted to talk to my parents more than a stranger. You still okay? My mom answered this time. Yeah, the cops are coming. She asked me if I needed her to stay on the line, but I declined. I wasn't in immediate danger, and I wanted to talk to my parents more than a stranger. You still okay? My mom had answered this time. Yeah, the cops are coming. So are the boys. We're turning onto your street now, so we'll be there in just a minute or two. It was the longest minute or two I'd ever experienced. 
I paced from the living room to the kitchen, checked the bathroom, including behind the shower curtain, and made sure both my linen closet and bathroom closet doors were open. A heavy knock filled the apartment. I ran to check the peephole. My parents were standing on the other side, their faces drawn with worry, and I rushed to get them inside. Just having them there made me feel instantly better, and I was able to walk them through a Reader's Digest version of my relationship with the man who called himself Scott. My brothers showed up halfway through, Chris with a metal baseball bat and Kyle with his hunting rifle. Dad acted less than thrilled with their choice to bring weapons and made them put them away before the police showed up. But I could tell it was only because he wished he'd brought something too. With my family surrounding me, my fear ebbed away more and more with each passing moment, giving way to embarrassment and the gnawing doubt that I overreacted. It didn't help that when the cops arrived, I showed them the text and explained everything, and they told me they couldn't do anything. While creepy, using someone else's picture wasn't exactly a crime, neither was taking my picture while I was out in public, and our text seemed friendly in nature. He hasn't threatened you in any way or made any attempt to come in direct contact with you, the older of the two said gently. I'm sorry, Miss Stone, but our hands are tied. They advised me to keep a log of any further incidents, left me both their cards, and promised they'd circle the block a couple more times that night for any suspicious activity. A less than stellar ending, but if they didn't think it was a big deal, then it probably wasn't. Scott, or... Whatever his name was, was just getting his kicks by scaring a stranger. Feeling more stupid than afraid, I was ready to send everyone home with an apology, but Mom and Dad wouldn't hear any of it. You're coming to stay with us for a few nights. You think I really need to? Some crazy guy is taking pictures of you outside your home, and you're seriously asking if you should stay somewhere else? Chris asked in that older brother tone that really meant... What, are you stupid? Kyle echoed the sentiment more bluntly. Don't be an idiot, Jules. While I packed a few days' worth of clothes in my duffel bag, my brothers and dad went down the street, looked into cars to make sure there wasn't anyone sitting and watching. When they called up with the all-clear, Mom and I locked the apartment and left. My brothers followed us in their cars back to my parents' house. They made sure we got inside safely before going their separate ways. I apologized to my parents again for causing such a fuss over what was probably just a dumb prank. Pranks are supposed to be funny, Mom said. That guy's lucky we didn't find him. We bid each other goodnights, and I flopped, emotionally exhausted, onto the guest bed. Sleep crowded my eyes, tugging my lids shut, and I was on the brink of slipping off into a peaceful slumber when my phone chirped. I was wide awake again. Any trace of weariness chased off by the innocuous sound of an incoming text. I swallowed hard and turned to the nightstand where my phone was resting. Its screen lit up the otherwise dark room, beckoning me to pick it up, and across the top I could read Scott's name. I debated letting the message go unread, but curiosity and renewed ire won over. I snatched it up and unlocked the phone. Sorry, I thought it was just too soon to meet the family. Looking forward to seeing you again. Maybe alone next time. I felt sick all over again. He'd been there. He'd watched us, but for how long? I trembled, my insides a roiling mess 
of fear, nausea, but also in the eye of it all, a growing seed of fury. He'd violated my trust, invaded my home, my safe place, and now he was mocking me? Never contact me again, you sick asshole. His number was blocked, all text deleted, not like they served any purpose. I removed the chat apps we used and I logged onto the dating site to delete my profile. And that was the last time I'd ever try going online to find a guy. With all means of communication cut off, I threw my phone to the carpet and buried myself beneath the comforter. The next week passed uneventfully. I didn't hear from Scott at all, so that was handled, I thought triumphantly. Eva was mad I hadn't called her the night of, but forgave me over a couple of drinks and all the details. When she asked if I tried looking anything up about the guy in the pictures, David, I adamantly told her no. Everything that had happened was disconcerting enough without adding a layer of murder to it. She offered to let me stay at her place for a while, but she already had her hands full with two kids and Pete, so I opted to stay with my folks. Dad drove me to work where security would escort me into the building at my parents' insistence, and then we'd repeat the process at the end of the day. If I had to run an errand, I needed to make sure at least someone knew where I was at all times. My family and Eva went so far as to start a group chat so I could send them all my location with a single text. It quickly became kind of annoying, even if everyone meant well. If I hadn't been being stalked before, I certainly felt like I was experiencing it now. That probably sounds ungrateful, but as much as I adored them and was thankful that I had such a great group of people who cared about me, I was ready for the things to go back to normal. Finally, when I felt like I was suffocating beneath the weight of their constant supervision, I had to sit my parents down and tell them I was going back to my apartment. I love you, and I appreciate how much you've done for me, but I can't live like this forever. I need to go home. They tried to change my mind, but when it became clear that I couldn't be convinced, Mom gave me a canister of mace and a whistle for my keychain. Even if we want you to stay, we understand. Make sure you use these if you have to. Remember, Jules, if it comes down to you or them, always pick you. They lingered for about an hour after we got back to my apartment. Dad installed a chain lock on the front door. Mom checked all the windows, even though we were on the third floor. And then we sat and mapped out the fastest routes to the police station. Tight hugs were exchanged when it was time to go, and they told me repeatedly to call at any time for any reason. Alone for the first time since that night, I have to admit I was a little nervous. Wanting to retake control of my home, I put on my PJs, booted up my computer, and ordered a pizza. I surfed the net while I waited for dinner to arrive, relaxing myself with a puppy and kitten video before eventually making the rounds to Facebook. I was met with over 50 friend requests, all with the same message. Looking forward to seeing you real soon. Every single profile picture was of me, none of which I'd ever seen before in all recent David Schlotsky was 31 years old when he died. He was a PhD student at State University, loved by many, a tennis enthusiast, and heavily involved with local theater groups, so it was a shock when his girlfriend shot him three times point 
blank in the chest. She wasn't charged with murder, though, or anything like that for that matter. It was self-defense. Apparently, the beloved only son of Nancy and Gratian Sklonsky was a drunk and abusive behind closed doors, and his girlfriend bore the brunt of it. She'd had all the cuts and bruises to prove it. The night he was killed, Tina said he was coming after her with a knife, and she was afraid for her life. She knew where he kept his handgun and grabbed it. She never meant to use it, but he kept coming. She had to make a choice. Herself or him. So she fired. The knife was still in his hand when the cops arrived. Kyle dug up as much about David as he could after he and Chris arrived at my apartment. I hadn't called them, just texted them both the screenshot of the Facebook requests, and they showed up barely ten minutes later. I thought about calling my parents over too, but they were worried enough, and I didn't want to end up in their guest room until they found Scott. The poor pizza girl just about passed out when she found herself blocked into my doorway by two strange men openly carrying firearms. They paid her and took the pizza, watched her go into the elevator until the doors had shut and started to descend, and then they knocked. They were still concerned, but it was far outweighed by their fury. Did you call the cops? Chris demanded once he was inside. When I said no, that based on what I'd been told before, nothing could be done about it, he snorted. You're probably right. It's not like I can get a restraining order against Scott from the internet. If that is your real name. I don't even know what this guy looks like. So we, and by we, I mean my brothers and I, decided it was past time to take matters into our own hands. It didn't take long to find David's story, even with how little we knew about him, but beyond the headlines following his death, there wasn't much to see. Kyle pulled up his Facebook page, and we read through six months of hate and hurt that had been left in his wake. The few who were willing to voice their doubts about the circumstances surrounding his final minutes were drowned out by a chorus of, Stop defending an abuser, and Tina's a hero. Kyle tried looking up at the girlfriend, Tina Astaro next, but she had zero internet footprints. So he was a creep too. Knowing that didn't make me feel any better. Looks like it. Doesn't help us though. Well, that went to a dead end faster than I expected. I absently bit into a slice of now cold pizza and stared at David's profile picture. It felt strange seeing a face I had come to know very well on a man I knew almost nothing about. I asked Kyle to close the page. I didn't want to see that smile anymore. We could go to his parents, Chris ventured slowly. Then say what? Hi, we read about your horrible son online. Do you know if he had any equally terrible friends? <laughs> I'm sure that'd go over super well, Kyle said. This guy's using David's picture for a reason. He sent Jules to his parents' house for a reason. There's some kind of connection there, and if the cops aren't going to look into it, we need to. I hated that Chris was right. The Schlotzky's number wasn't listed anywhere that our amateur efforts could find. I had at least wanted to call them first and let them know that we were coming and why, but after our search turned up nothing, my brother said they'd just have to deal with an unexpected drop-in. They called their wives, said they were going to stay with me for a while, and spend the night on my living room floor, their handguns in easy reach. 
Unable to sleep and knowing how much of a night owl she was, I texted Eva with tomorrow's plan. You guys be careful. You don't know those people. I know. We will. I'm so tired of this shit. Hopefully they can help you. Yeah, we'll see. Want to borrow Pete tomorrow? Anytime, baby, anytime. It was easy to act confident and dismissive in my text, but I felt like a wreck. I doubted our visit the next day would prove useful and we'd be dredging up a very painful part of their recent past. It didn't seem fair to make them relive their son's death again when it probably wouldn't even help. I tried telling that to my brothers the next morning, but I was given an option. I could go with them or stay behind while they went. An hour later, I was in the backseat of Chris's Explorer heading up the highway. You're sure it's this one? Yeah. Will you guys wait while I talk to her? (laughs) Hell no. Nope. At least let me knock alone and explain. This was a delicate situation, and my brothers were anything but. They agreed to let me go to the door by myself, but they'd be standing outside the car so that it was clear I wasn't alone. Me going inside without them was out of the question. I stood on the front porch for a while, nervous, uncomfortable, and trying to figure out what I was going to say to these poor people when Ms. Schlotsky opened the door. What do you want? She snapped. Oh, good. She remembered me. I... My voice wavered and I cleared my throat. I was hoping to talk to you about David. She eyed me with open disdain. Why? You don't even know who he was last time you were here. Did you find out you were hoping for some more details to fill your sick little head? What? No, I said in a rush. I think I'm being stalked by someone I met online. He was using your son's picture. I took it as a good sign when she didn't immediately slam the door in my face. Again. I just wanted to know if you might have known any of David's friends who would do that. She stepped out of the house and then closed the door firmly behind her. From the car, my brothers were watching her with the stillness of predators ready to pounce, but Mrs. Slotsky didn't seem to notice them. What kind of person do you think David was? I shrugged helplessly. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to find a connection. She must have seen something in the defeated slump of my shoulders because she softened slightly. I don't care what the report said. My boy wasn't a drunk, and he certainly wasn't running around beating women. I'm sorry, I repeated lamely. I never thought that Tina was any good for him. Sometimes you just know, especially as a mom. I tried to talk to him about it, but David was in love. He was usually so skeptical about people, but never Tina. All traces of softness were gone. I wasn't surprised when I caught her sneaking around behind David's back. Ran into her at the movie with some guy she had the nerve to act angry with when I told her I was going to tell David. And... Did you? Of course. That's why the police were so willing to believe her. Everyone was. They said it was a typical lover's quarrel gone too far after he'd been drinking. I don't know how to make my next question any less harsh. 
so I just asked her flatly. How do you know it wasn't? Because I know my son. David didn't drink. He didn't like the taste. But everything said he had... uh, Problems. Tina said. And everyone ate it up. People have a funny way of believing things if they're printed on paper. So the dead guy's mom was sure he wasn't a monster. No surprise there. Nothing she had told me had helped me at all. She caught her son's girlfriend cheating with some guy she didn't know. Son goes ballistic, girlfriends end up killing him in self-defense. He didn't own a gun. Mrs. Schlotsky interrupted my thoughts. Sorry? Tina told everyone that she used David's gun to do it. But David didn't own a gun. Swords, knives, whatever kind of medieval things he could get his hands on, but never a gun. They scared him. The one she had was unregistered. Probably picked it up from some other scumbag she was cheating with. Mr. Slotsky, I'm sorry to ask, but do you have Tina's phone number? I'd like to speak to her. She hesitated, but finally nodded and disappeared back into the house. When she returned, she was carrying a leather-bound address book. This was David's. Her fingers stroked the cover lovingly. He was old-fashioned, liked to keep things written down. I thanked her after she handed me the book and flipped to the O's. Tina's name and number were written in big, loopy handwriting that didn't match the rest. I guess she wrote it herself. Take the page, Miss Schlotsky said. I don't want anything of hers here anymore. I'm really sorry for your loss, I said as I prepared to leave. She nodded misty eyes and held the book to her chest. My brothers demanded I tell them everything before we'd even gotten into the car. I told them to shut up and just go. The poor woman didn't need to see us dissecting her story on her front lawn. As we pulled away, I looked at Tina's number again. Something about it struck me as familiar. My heartbeat quickened as cold realization slithered up my spine. Numbly, I reached for my phone, ignoring my brother's questions, and went to the blocked numbers section. Tina's number was already in my phone. The screen flashed with a new text notification from an unknown number. I had just enough time to read the message before the preview window disappeared. I wish you hadn't done that. Guys, I said, go, drive! Chris looked at me in the rearview mirror, his brows raised in question. Kyle half-turned in his seat. What's up? I got another text. He's here. He's watching us. Just go. The Explorer's engine roared with life as Chris accelerated toward the highway. We were lucky in a way that there were so few other cars on the road. We were able to clear the town's limits in half the usual time. I kept checking my phone, but there were no other messages. A truck, a big Ford type that looked like it was on steroids, pulled onto the highway behind us. It rode close to our bumper, its engine revving. I was so occupied with my phone that I didn't notice until Chris said, Kyle, get the lockbox and take the guns out. He said it so calmly and matter-of-factly that I almost asked him to repeat himself. Our brother was quicker on the uptake and dove down, scrambling to reach the lockbox under his seat. 
I was jerked forward, stopped only by my seatbelts pulling taut against my chest, and I clung to the back of Chris's seat to steady myself. The truck drove into our rear again, harder, and this time Chris swerved slightly. Kyle, still bent over, was thrown headfirst into the dashboard. Chris tried to right the car, but the truck was alongside us now, nudging our back bumper further and farther off course until the Explorer was thrown into a spin. I screamed, grabbing at Chris like that would help us get back to the asphalt, while we skid through the shoulder and slammed into a guardrail. Powder from the airbags filled the car. I cracked my head solidly against the window and my vision swam. Through the haze, I could make out Kyle slumped in his seat. Chris, a splash of red on his neck from where his seatbelt bit into him, was leaning over Kyle, trying to unwedge the lockbox from beneath the seat. His ragged breathing and the blood rushing in my ears thrummed painfully through my skull. A sound like a too-close firecracker and the left back tire sank suddenly. I screamed again. My brother swore at me and told me to get down. Something metallic tapped against the back windshield. Tap, tap, tap. All along the side of the car until a man was standing outside my window, grinning and tapping the butt of his sawed-off shotgun against the glass. I met his cold gaze and couldn't even breathe call for my brother. Chris twisted sharply, the lockbox in one hand but still unopened and went rigid. A woman, fair-haired and wild-eyed, had pressed her face in the muzzle of a pistol against the driver's side window. She was wagging a finger at him warningly. The man leaned so close to my window that his breath fogged it. I told you I'd be seeing you real soon, Jules. He and the woman took a step back, then another, and then took aim. My shoulders shook with silent, desperate sobs. I stared into the black barrel of Scott's gun, and I knew that I was going to die. That my brothers were going to die, and it was my fault. I'm sorry, I whispered hoarsely to Chris. I was glad Kyle wasn't conscious to experience this. I closed my eyes and I let the tears fall freely. There was a brief blast of a car horn and the sound of squealing tires. I jumped and my eyes snapped open in time to see both the man and woman sliding off the front of a speeding maroon car. It skid to half a little ways down the shoulder and it was thrown in reverse. I noticed a bumper sticker in support of a local theater group. Thump, thump. Mrs. Schlotsky braked beside us and rolled down her window. Her face was red, tear-stained, and torn with grief. Her fingers wrapped around her steeling wheel in a vice-like grip. Every inch of her was trembling. We stared at each other for a long, tense moment. Your kid's okay? It took a few months, but from computer and phone logs, police were able to piece together the sordid affair that had been Tina and Scott's relationship. Tina had been seeing Robbie, Scott's real name, by the way, behind David's back for a few weeks when Mrs. Schlotsky came across them. No one would ever know for sure what happened the night David was murdered, but the little that was recovered from that time made it seem like David had confronted Tina, things got heated, and Robbie shot him. The cuts and bruises that Tina had paraded about as proof of physical abuse were probably courtesy of Robbie after the fact. They were a sick pair who got their thrills by causing harm. They made dozens of dating profiles with the sole purpose of gaining personal information in order to harass and horrify. 
They'd flippantly used David's pictures and history because Tina had easy access to it, and since they'd gotten away with so much already, they weren't worried about getting caught. All their victims had been completely at random, with no real structure or thought behind it. I'd been their favorite, at first because of how cautious I was, and then because of my refusal to stop living my life. They viewed it as a challenge, and wanted to break me, make me too terrified to leave home. When that didn't work, they decided they wanted to relive the thrill of what happened to David. We got so lucky that Misha Slotsky, for no reasons she could even explain, felt compelled to look back out her window that afternoon. She recognized Tina driving that truck and knew something wasn't right. Because of her quick, decisive action, we got away with only minor cuts and scrapes and, in Kyle's case, a concussion, but we're alive. My family and I will never stop being grateful. I've decided to keep a mostly low profile online and off of dating sites altogether. I'll stick to more traditional routes from here on out. I don't want to scare people with my story, but I do want to raise awareness about how dangerous it can be on here. So I hope I've managed to do that for at least some people. Please be careful and stay safe, but if it ever comes down to you or them... Always choose you. Small trigger warning before this second story. Near the end, there is some mention of violence towards animals. If that's something you're not comfortable with listening to, the timestamp will be on the screen. Mr. Miller was a dick. Excuse my language, but I really, really, really hated that guy. He was the type of old guy that would scream at you for getting too close to his lawn when you were just walking by on the sidewalk or complain that kids playing in their own front yard were being too loud. One time, Mr. Miller came over to our house to argue with my parents over a package he was convinced we had stolen because it didn't come when he thought it would. The guy was here for nearly an hour before going home and subsequently receiving his package. To this day, it bothers me that despite the numerous security cameras set up around his house, he chose to have a pointless argument instead of watching his own footage. The guy was fucking awful. I'm pretty sure he had it out for the whole street, and he definitely made that known. My parents had always advised me to stay away from his house, and for the most part, I listened. Admittedly, there were times he'd push me a little too far, so I'd take it upon myself to sign him up for a bunch of spam mail or make fake accounts online with his face and start stuff with strangers online. One particular time, I was playing on the basketball hoop outside, and my ball bounced into his front yard. I cursed myself for my poor aim and contemplated a strategy to pick to retrieve my ball. This basically amounted to me checking to see if he was in the window and then bolting to the grass to get it. As soon as I touched his yard, he sprinted out of the house, screaming at me to get the fuck off of his property. I yelled back that I needed my ball, and he kept shouting about how he didn't care and to just leave. I picked it up and ran back inside, where I watched him walk furiously to our porch and pound ferociously on the door. My dad ran downstairs, asking what was going on. I explained the situation as best I could, and he just rolled his eyes and calmly opened the door. 
But before he could even get a word out, Mr. Miller went on a tirade about how I needed to stay away from his home and how I was being incredibly disrespectful by leaving stuff on his property. My dad simply stood and nodded while being yelled at and then calmly apologized. Unsatisfied, Mr. Miller nodded and took a step back off the porch. Beat red, he looked at my dad dead in the eyes, pointed at his house, and coldly stated, I'm going to buy a fucking gun and shoot the next kid that steps onto my fucking yard. Shocked, my dad paused for a second before screaming at him to stay away from us and that if he threatened us again, he was very willing to go to jail to end the situation. He then informed Mr. Miller he'd be calling the police, but the old man waved him off and stormed home. Within the next 15 minutes, an officer showed up to take statements. From the window, I could see Mr. Miller yelling and furiously pointing towards our house. The officer came back and told us that Mr. Miller didn't seem serious about the gun thing, but that they'd keep note of it and let them know if anything happened. My parents sat my sister and me down that night and told us that we should still do our best to avoid Mr. Miller's house, even though we hadn't done anything. That meant not playing basketball at our hoop and walking on the other side of the street to get home so that he couldn't complain. They knew it was a bit much on our part, but they were less concerned about what we actually did as opposed to what he thought we'd do. And despite the disappointment of having to live our lives around him, we understood. Over time, avoiding his home became routine. Whenever he'd do something odd in plain view, we'd watch for a brief moment before turning away, not wanting to accidentally catch his eye. That was until he started wearing his gun around. I remember the first day I saw it. He was doing some yard work and I was riding down the street on my bike. The mere glance at the big shotgun slung around his back made me stop in the middle of the road. I think I was stopped with my jaw hung open for a whole ten seconds. All I could remember was staring at that deadly piece of metal on Mr. Miller's back. I sped home nearly, destroying my pedals as I went. As soon as I saw my door, I threw my bike into the yard and raced up to my bedroom, locking the door behind me. quickly texted my parents and told them what I'd seen. As soon as they got home, they comforted me and told me I was going to be okay, but there was simply no way for me to trust that they were right. Later that night, I listened in on them talking about what to do, and they were both at a loss. They came to agreement that the only thing to do was to inform the police. They both knew it wouldn't be safe to go onto his property and talk to him about the weapon, and they legally couldn't make him relinquish it. As far as I was concerned, I figured the only thing I could do was warn my friends and remind everyone to be on their absolute best behavior. Surprisingly, everything was pretty typical for the next month or so. No children turned up missing, and for me, that was a win. At least until the evening, we heard a gunshot from next door. My parents scrambled to me in my sister's room to grab us and lock in with them. They called the police and we waited together until the officers came to our door. Unsurprisingly, the whole damn neighborhood had phoned it in. But, surprisingly, Mr. Miller was nowhere to be found. It actually wasn't until hours later when he pulled back into his driveway. He explained to the police that he'd been out on a late night drive and had nothing to do with the shooting. 
since no one was awake to deny this, they asked him for his security camera footage. Mr. Miller claimed that the security cameras were having issues and therefore were shut off. There wasn't much that they could do as there was no evidence. And for what felt like the millionth time, they left without taking him in handcuffs. Though we were disappointed he wasn't at least taken in for questioning, there was still the big question of who or what got shot. We got our answer a couple of days later when one of our local neighbors, Miss Ramirez, noticed her dog was missing. This was strange considering her dog kept behind a near inescapable gated fence. That is until she noticed that the gate was broken and her dog was gone. I remember coming out to see her screaming at him from his porch. Apparently the two had multiple encounters in the past. Miss Ramirez was accusing Mr. Miller of taking her dog and then killing him out in the woods. He, of course, denied these allegations and slammed the door in her face. From the rumors around school, Miss Ramirez had gone down to the station to beg the police to do something, but without the body, there just wasn't enough evidence. As shitty as it sounds, they weren't about to go on a manhunt for a missing dog. We all felt awful about what happened. As much as we wished we could confront Mr. Miller, no one wanted to risk setting him off. And no one could have predicted how it all come to a head during the waning days of summer. My friend Andy and I were biking down the sidewalk when we saw a family walking towards us. As we made the move to bike on the street, Andy lost control and made an emergency turn to the first soft landing spot he could. That soft landing spot just so happened to be Mr. Miller's yard. I remember seeing the torn up grass as he and his bike dug into the freshly made lawn. I remember screaming, shit, as I slapped my hands on my head while lying there collecting himself. I was about to run and grab him, but as soon as I saw the terrifying old man step from his porch, I froze in fear. Oh my god, he yelled. In a fit of rage, he rushed towards Andy, arms outstretched and guns swinging from the strap on his back. Everything happened so quickly. The next thing I knew, Mr. Miller had his arm wrapped tightly around Andy's neck. I could see him struggling against the strength of Mr. Miller as he was dragged into the house. I sprinted over to grab my friend but stopped short when he flashed a small knife. I could see tears rolling down Andy's eyes as he screamed and furiously fought to free himself. And in just a few short seconds, they were gone. I immediately called the police to report the hostage and waited for what felt like hours until they came. But the tension of me waiting for them to arrive was nothing compared to when they went into the house. I could hear screaming, a gunshot, some return fire, and then silence. To my relief, Mr. Miller was eventually brought out in handcuffs. I remember him giving me a nasty scowl as he walked by. Andy was... Brought out mere moments later, his neck bruised, but luckily he was otherwise okay. The one thing that has stuck with me the most happened after the police had raided his home, taken numerous bags out and left the scene. 
Knowing no one was there, I decided it was worth taking a look inside. It was absolutely disgusting. The man was definitely a hoarder. Rotten food was everywhere, trash was piling up, and there was a smell that would make you intensely ill if you hung around it for too long. I tried to think back to what I saw earlier that day. I remembered the bags smelling of something foul as they passed me, but when I looked inside, it was beyond what I could ever contemplate. Pieces of cats and dogs were chopped up and strewn about the stove. I didn't know if he'd been feasting on them or if he gained some sort of sick amusement from it. Whenever I tried to talk to Andy about what he saw in there, he just shook his head and silently told me he never wanted to talk about it. Since that day, I've always gotten this dark feeling in the pit of my stomach. What if he was waiting for a kid to do something like that? He always came out so quickly whenever one of us got too close. It would have been easy for him to monitor us from his security cameras, right? Maybe there was a reason he tried to drag Andy into the house instead of scaring him away. I don't know. I could be getting ahead of myself since I don't have any proof. The thought just scares me. Still, though, I can't help but shake the feeling that there was a decent chance that Andy nearly ended up like Miss Ramirez's dog. Before we get into the next story, near the end of this one, there is a very real depiction of someone about to attempt suicide. If that is something that you do not feel comfortable listening to, the timestamp for the end of this story will be on the screen for the entirety of it. So if at any point you feel uncomfortable, just go to the final story in the video. The things that haunt a man the most are not usually the choices that he's made, but rather the choices that he never did make. I've lived through some of the worst hells that you could ever imagine, 9,490 of them to be exact. Every night when I lay down to sleep, I find myself praying for the same thing. Sleep with the absence of dreams. Every night is exactly the same. This trend started 26 years ago, when I was 10. The first time that the nightmare overtook my dreams, I had come home from the worst day of my life. My dad had taken me to Splash Park. It wasn't much, just a couple of water jets that shot up into the air that kids run around under and cool off from the heat. We were poor growing up and never could afford to go to any big water parks, but the Splash Plaid was always fun. That is until that day. I remember running around under the jets carefree, enjoying the sweet relief of that cool water brought as it splashed on my red skin. There were a couple of other kids there too, but I didn't pay them much attention as I was always a bit of a loner, even as a child. Kyle, come on buddy, it's time to go. I heard my dad say from the bench that sat opposite of the pad. Oh, come on dad, just a little longer. I pleaded not noticing the little girl that was making her way toward me from the other side of the pad. Five more minutes, he replied, shaking his head and smiling. As I turned back to the water jet, happy 
for the extra time to play, I was met with a little girl standing not even a foot away from me. My heart seemed like it would jump out of my chest as I noticed the girl's face. It looked decayed. Her eyes were sunken back into her skull. They were pure white, and her mouth was wide open. She stood there, gazing at me inches away, mouth hanging open for what seemed like hours. I couldn't move. I was frozen at the sight of this hideous girl. After a while of this, I finally regained my ability to speak and said in a shaky voice, Hi, I'm Kyle. What's, what's your name? The girl turned her head to the side like a dog does when he's trying to understand what you're saying to him. She let out a long gasp in response. Her breath hit my face and smelled like smoke and burned hair. It wasn't until I stopped choking that I realized she had burns all over her arms and legs. Long singe marks going up the sides from foot to waist. The skin was hanging off from several places. I turned in fear back toward my dad, hoping that he would see the girl and come rescue me. But he was chatting with another kid's mom on the bench, not even looking in my direction. As I turned back to face the little girl, she was gone. I ran hard and fast to where my dad was sitting. Hey, buddy, you finally ready to go? He said, smiling, but his facial expression quickly changed as I got close to him. What's wrong? What happened? He asked, concern now mixed into his tone. The girl over by the pad, I replied through heavy breaths. She's hurt or burned, I I don't know. Looking over my shoulder to the pad, my dad asked, What girl? I don't see any girl, Kyle. Let's let's go home. I think you just had too much sun today. I didn't argue. I had just maybe imagined it. We walked back to the car. Dad was talking to me, but I didn't hear anything about what he was saying. I was too preoccupied, looking over my shoulder back toward the pad, searching for the little girl. My dad had to basically push me back to keep me from walking straight into the car as he held it open for me. Whoa, champ, watch where you're going. I can't afford a hospital visit if you bust your noggin open on this door. We'll come back and play another day. I promise. The car ride home seemed much longer than usual. My mind was still thinking about the little girl. Where had she come from? Surely her parents would be looking for her to get her wounds patched up. As my dad and I pulled into the driveway, I could see my mom coming out to greet us. He's a little shook up. Too much sun, I think. Better get him inside and cool him off. I could hear my dad tell her after their usual welcome home kiss and hug. After we ate dinner, mom came up to my room as I was getting ready for bed. She closed the door, which was really strange since she normally just came in, picked up my dirty clothes, and gave me a hug and a kiss goodnight. There was something strange about her facial expression something different about her tone of voice as she said your dad told me about the splash pad what'd you see a little reluctantly i recounted the events that happened at the splash pad not leaving out any detail mom just sat on my bed listening her new expression never changed as i concluded the story there's something you need to know kyle but this day is between you and me I don't want your father knowing about this, she said while I looked nervously at her. 
My parents were always the perfect couple. Even through hard times, they always loved each other. They never fought or had harsh words between them. So the thought of her keeping anything from my dad seemed odd to me, and I didn't really like the idea of it. We come from a long line of mediums. She stopped as if trying to really think of the right way to explain it. What you saw was an omen. It wasn't as bad as I expected, though, since the girl didn't touch you and she disappeared. You need to be aware of a few things. Her eyes started to water as she continued. These kinds of omens never mean good things to come. In this case, I believe that little girl must have been killed in a fire, and she came to you because you're like a magnet to the spirits that still walk the earth. I didn't know what to say. I had no idea what she was talking about. I thought that ghosts were just make-believe, and now suddenly she's telling me that I attract them? Finally, after staring at her for what seemed like an hour in disbelief, I said, Finally, after staring at her for what seemed like an hour in disbelief, I said, Are you a medium? She laughed, confusing me for a second before she replied with a big smile. <laughs> oh, heavens no, baby, I'm not a medium. Do you think that I could keep that fact a secret from your father for all those years? No, your grandmother, my mom, was a medium. So, what does this mean for me? I managed. It means that things are going to start happening around you. Lights flickering, shadows in your room moving at nights, waking up the voices talking to you, premonitions and dreams. There it was. Dreams. The very thing that would plague me every night for the next 26 years. I never did see any ghosts or other weird things that my mom spoke of after that girl at the splash pad. After our talk, my mom left my room, leaving me scared and confused about all of the new information that she had just offloaded onto me. I lay down and turned out my lamp. I lay awake for a long time, spooked rapidly, looking around my room, searching for anything out of the ordinary when sleep finally took me. The first thing I saw was a building on fire. It was a large two-story house at the end of a cul-de-sac. The mailbox read 322 James Street. There were fire trucks with ladders and firefighters pointing hoses toward the inferno, trying to extinguish the fire. I became a little disoriented from all the lights flickering from the trucks and ambulances jam-packed into the cul-de-sac. It was dark outside, and besides the fire that engulfed the house, the only lights were from the emergency vehicles. I stumbled a little, and as I looked down toward the ground to regain my bearings, I realized that I was wearing firefighting equipment. I reached my hand up and felt the helmet on my head. I could hear someone shouting something from behind me, and I turned around to see who it was, nearly hitting another firefighter with an axe that I had in my hand. I hadn't even realized I was carrying it until after that moment. A man standing by a red SUV that said Fire Chief on the side was looking right at me. Kyle, go! He shouted, pointing at the blazing house. I didn't know what I was doing, but at the same time, it felt like I had done this before, a hundred times. I turned back toward the house, running at full speed toward the flames. Even when my protective gear on, I could feel the extreme heat radiating from the blaze. I could hear someone's voice come over the radio. Pants say there's a little girl trapped in the second-story bathroom. Without hesitation, I responded. 
Ten four. I'm making entry now. Keep on my six and stay sharp. Watch it for falling debris. This kid is not dying on my watch. Myself and two other firefighters made our way into the house. The black smoke that billowed in front of me almost blacked out the hallway we were traveling down. I could hardly see ten feet in front of me. We pushed forward with the hose slung over our shoulder. There's the stairs, I yelled, pointing to my right as we continued down the hallway. The stairs were not yet on fire besides a few burning embers that had fallen onto them from the top floor. I made my way up, tapping on the step with each halligan bar to make sure that they were stable. The climb was slow, and the hose we were pulling was heavy. Once we got to the top landing, I could see flames engulfing the sides of the walls and roofs going down to the second-story hallway. The heat was almost too much to bear. We made our way to the first door on the right, touching it to feel for heat. If there was fire on the other side of the door and we opened it, it could cause an explosion, killing us all. After determining that there was no fire on the other side, I began to scream. Holly! Holly, are you here? No answer. I don't know how I knew what name to call, it just came to me. I tried the knob, it was locked. If you're in here, stand away from the door, I'm going to break it down. I yelled before swinging my axe toward the door. It took three swings before it opened. As I stepped into the bathroom, I heard a loud crash from behind me. It shook the house. Looking back, I could see that part of the roof had caved in, blocking the hallway to the stairs. Frantically, I searched for the girl. She was sitting in the tub, unconscious. Another crash, this time causing an explosion in the hallway, blowing out the window at the end. I could hear the glass shatter, feel the pressure from the blast. Get the girl! We have to get out of here! I could hear someone saying my radio. We reached down, picking her up and cradling her against my chest. As I turned back to leave, the other two firefighters were using the hose to put out the fire from the fallen beam, so that we had a safe place to leave from. Slowly, testing every step, we made our way back down the hallway, the flames getting more violent. The heat seemed to have tripled. Just as I made it to the stairs, one of the other firefighters pushed past, almost knocking me off my feet as he ran by, flying down the stairs in fear. Fuck! I cursed as I slammed into the wall, flinging the legs of the little girl into the fire. I could hear her skin sizzle in the flames. As I began to regain my balance, I saw the other man had fled. The main beam in the room was falling right toward me, and with a loud crash it pinned me to the ground, causing me to drop the little girl. She was still unconscious, lying directly in the flames to my right. My head spinning, and I tried to push the beam off me, but it was no use. It was too heavy. After a few minutes of pushing, I gave up feeling the flames starting to burn my own skin. The fire was beyond control. I was stuck with no hope. My heart was pounding with the thought of this little girl burning to death as well as my own fiery doom. I laid there in agony, feeling the flames licking the skin on my hands, and in one instant, I watched as the rest of the burning roof collapsed on top of me. I woke, drenched in sweat, screaming. My mother rushed into the room, fear on her face. After calming down, I recounted the dream her hands covering her mouth and tears streaming down her face as I spoke. She didn't say anything. She just sat there and held me. It's been 26 years to the day since that first dream, and every night has been the same sense. The same house, same girl, same death. 
as I'm sitting here writing this, I can hear the alarm sounding a voice just came over the intercom now. I have a hard choice to make. 1070, structure fire, all units respond. 322, James Street. I've never felt this kind of pain and sadness before. My choices will haunt me for the rest of my life. I listened to a lot of your comments about my dream and decided that I would try to use it as a how-to guide of sorts. I went into that burning house intent on saving Holly and making it out alive myself, but in the end, the only person I was able to save was myself. Holly and another firefighter died that night because I was unable to change the outcome. I'm starting to believe that those dreams are not meant to show me what not to do, but rather they show me the lives that will be lost. I don't think they care exactly who dies, but the number of lives is important. The look that her parents gave me as I came out of that house is one I will never forget. Martha, Holly's mom, broke down in anguish. Screams of terror and grief pierced the night. She cursed me. You son of a bitch. I hope you rot in hell. It should have been you who burned up in that fire, not my little girl. Remember what you have done. I couldn't say anything. I hung my head and took the abuse. I couldn't help but feel how right she was. In my effort to do different, the death toll was the same. I've requested a leave of absence, which my chief has approved. Things have changed drastically for me. I no longer have that dream. I actually don't dream at all now. I have seen Holly, though, every day since her death. She visits me at home, just pops up out of nowhere. I'm still not used to it. It scares the living fuck out of me. At first, she would show up and tell me not to worry. She knows it wasn't my fault and things will be okay. She said she would be going to a better place soon and not cry for her anymore. The thing is, I don't think she is going to a better place. She no longer tells me of good things. She now accuses me. Three nights after the fire, I was sitting in my chair drinking my seventh or eighth beer when Holly appeared in front of me. I jumped, spilling beer down my shirt. Her facial expression was no longer the joyous, happy face of hope that she had been carrying. It was now anger, disgust, and hatred. You've killed me, Kyle, and doomed me to walk this earth as a shadow, she told me as I wiped up the beer. You knew I would die. You knew how it would end, and yet you went ahead and responded to the fire. If you would have stayed home, I might still be alive. I'm sorry, Holly, I thought, when she cut me off, pointing a finger at me. You've known for 26 years how things were going to be, but all you cared about was yourself. Now you're stuck with me, and it's going to be hell. I slid off my chair, hearing those words, my heart pounding in my chest, tears welling up in my eyes, grief worming its way back through my body. I only did what I thought was right. Holly, I tried to save you. I wanted you to grow up and live a long life. I didn't know this was happened. I said, sobbing. She moved closer to me, sheer hatred in her eyes. Oh, really? Why don't we revisit that night? 
she said, placing the palm of her hand on my cheek. It was cold and hot all at the same time. I winced as I felt my eyes roll to the back of my head and everything went black. The next thing I see is myself holding Holly in my arms as the upstairs is completely engulfed in flames. Then John, one of the other firefighters, comes rushing past me as the roof starts to collapse. I knew it was coming, so I watched myself step to the side as he rushed down the stairs. John tripped and rolled down the steps. When his body reached the ground floor, I could see that his head was turned too far around. He was dead. The specter then said, See, Kyle, you let him die. In your dream, he hits you as he ran, and that slowed him down enough that he safely cleared the stairs and got out. But now, he's dead because you stepped aside, letting him fall. It's your fault. She was now pointing back to where I stood, holding her lifeless body as the beam fell. I watched myself stumble as it crashed to the floor where I had been standing seconds ago. As I stumbled, I lost my grip on Holly and dropped her. As I tumbled down the steps, she was still up top as an explosion happened, engulfing her frail body in flames. I could see the look of horror and anguish on my face before watching myself run out of the building, dragging John out with me. After that, I was sitting back on the floor in my living room. Holly was gone. That night, I barely slept. The weight of what I had just watched crushed me. I couldn't stop thinking that I could have done better, but how? It seems like it doesn't matter what route I choose, Holly would still die. The next morning, things got worse. Every hour or so, Holly would appear, shout an insult out like murderer, coward, and burn in hell at me, and then disappear before I could say anything. That night, I found myself drunk and curled up in a ball and shower, my clothes still on. I could see a silhouette behind me in the shower curtain. It was Holly, standing there, grimacing at me, her body now showing signs of severe burns. Skin was bubbled up all over her body, and the smell of burnt flesh invaded my nose. See, Kyle? This is what you did to me. She said in a loud voice before letting out a scream of agony that made my blood run cold. Please, please, enough. I'm so sorry. Just leave me alone, I said as I tried to stand up. And then she said the words that still ring in my ears today. You should kill yourself, Kyle. You should just end your pathetic excuse for a life. You couldn't save me, so you shouldn't continue trying to save yourself. You were supposed to die in that fire. Her eyes were cold and ruthless as she spoke. Something inside of me told me that she was right. I didn't deserve to live, not after the misery I put her family through. And John... John didn't deserve to die. He was a good man with a baby on the way. A baby that would now grow up without a father because of me. And I stood there wet and crying as I nodded my head. Holly's eyes grew bright with excitement. Her body changed back to normal. You know where the gun is, Kyle. Just pull the trigger. 
she said, trying to conceal her smile. I made my way into the bedroom, opened my nightstand drawer where my gun sat, my hands trembling as I picked it up. Holly was smiling, nodding in approval as I flipped the safety and pressed the cold barrel to my temple. Tears were rolling down my face at a rapid pace. Holly yelled, Do it, Kyle. Do it, Kyle, over and over again. I had a finger on the trigger. I closed my eyes, waiting for everything to end. Just about the time I started to squeeze the trigger, I heard a voice from behind me say, Kyle, don't. This this thing isn't Holly. I opened my eyes, turning back to look for whoever had spoken. It was John, his face full of concern. Don't listen to him, Kyle. Do it, Holly screamed, rushing up to me, grabbing a hold of the gun, forcing it back to my temple. I could hear John yell, then I felt something hard hit my wrist, knocking the gun from my hand. When it hit the floor, it went off. The concussion of the bullet firing in my bedroom made my ears ring like someone was hitting a bell right next to my head. I hit the floor, clutching my ears. John had grabbed Holly and was wrestling with her, pulling her back. There was a dark ring on the wall behind them. It swirled and seemed to be drawing them toward it. John yelled something, but I couldn't understand what he said. Holly was clawing at him, trying to escape his clutches. She yelled at me one last time before she and John disappeared into the hole and were gone. You'll never escape me, Kyle. I will come back. Every neighborhood has one. That creepy old house that nobody wants to go near. Parts of this siding have fallen to the ground due to the neglect from whoever lives there. Dusty old windows around the house only give you a hazy glimpse of the shabby curtain hung from it. Of course, rumors would always be spread around the neighborhood about it being haunted or cursed. One particular house in my neighborhood checked every single one of those boxes, including the one about how an old, creepy hermit lived inside. I've only seen the owner of the house a few times, usually yelling from her windows at the children who had wandered too close to her home. Some of the kids occasionally taunted her yelling, Public sidewalk! Public sidewalk! with their arms outstretched, almost daring her to come make them leave. She never did. She would always ramble on incoherently and slam the window shut. One particular night, I was walking with my dog and past her house. As my dog stopped to sniff a very exciting patch of grass that had grown through the sidewalk, I took a second to look up at the house. One window was lit up, and I could see through the sliver between the curtains. It was her. She was frantically talking to herself. I obviously couldn't hear what she was saying, but she seemed to be going back and forth between arguing with herself then pleading with herself. A frown drooped across my face as I watched her yank at her hair while continuing her solo rant. I could see her throw clumps of hair to the floor after each yank. I hurried my dog along and we continued home. Now, I've left out one particular feature of this horror house. Several of the windows were lined with old creepy dolls. 
They were usually just piled up on the windowsill and facing forward, staring out at you from an already spooky house. I've never gotten close enough to really take a look at one of the dolls, but they were clearly old and decrepit. I've always assumed they were there to frighten off the neighborhood kids, and most of the dolls looked purposely mangled, almost as if to look as terrifying as possible. If that was her intent, she succeeded. My hell, they were horrific. Did you hear? My girlfriend asked as I dried off the last of the dishes. Old Lady Higgins died last night. Saw the ambulance haul her off. I guess living to the ripe old age of 200 was a bit too much for her, she continued. Lori had been my girlfriend for two years now, and we had just barely moved in together. This was our first venture as full-fledged adults on our own, so we were that stereotypical excited couple enjoying the wonders of our newfound freedom. Okay, first off, I never knew that was her name. Did you know her? I asked with a smirk as she dried her hands. No, my grandma told me it. I guess they went to school together. She said she was always the weird girl in the corner who just doodled all day, she replied. Well, the crazy hit her pretty hard as she got older then. Still, it's always sad to see someone go, I offered, feeling a bit guilty about my first statement. I wonder what they're going to do with her house, she said in an echoing voice while talking to her coffee cup. What are you guys talking about? Paul said as he walked into the kitchen. He'd stayed the night after our poker session from the previous night went a bit longer than we thought. Paul was my best friend, and we'd often lose track of time when we hang out. Well, the crazy old lady up the street passed away last night. We were just talking about what's going to happen with her house, I replied as I sat at the kitchen table with Lori. You mean that decaying old lump of a house? I didn't even know anyone still lived there. It looks condemned, he said with his eyebrows lifted. It probably should be, I replied. Hey, let's go check it out. Paul shouted excitedly. What? Lori yelped as she slammed her coffee cup a little harder than expected on the table. If she had any family, they probably won't be around for a while to get her stuff. I've always wanted to know what it looked like in there. Although, those dolls do give me the creeps, he said, almost in a salesman-like pitch. I scoffed. Nah, no, I'm good. Paul slumped his shoulders to show his disappointment. How about we should go take a peek in the windows? Curiosity is killing me, he said, lifting his hands up on either side. I looked towards Lori. She shrugged her shoulders. It's up to you guys, she said as she lifted herself from her chair. Apparently Paul's little sales pitch worked as we were soon venturing out to the creepy house. Its ominous presence seemed to be quite a bit more menacing, knowing the house was now vacant. A hesitation came over all three of us as we stood at the sidewalk of the house. We looked at each other for a bit of approval and began our walk. The crunching of dead leaves and sticks under our feet reminded me of an old horror movie where it would get quiet right before a big scene. The sense of thrill came over me as we walked around the side of the house. I looked toward Paul, who immediately bit his bottom lip with eyes lit up as if to dare to peek me in. And I did. To my disappointment, the dirt on the window paired with the dark, unlit room made it impossible to see anything. The only thing I could see clearly was an old wooden chair backed up against the closet wall. I sighed and looked towards Paul. Uh, guys? Lori said under her breath. 
we both turned to see Lori pointing to another portion of the house. We walked over slowly to see what she was trying to point out. I snapped my head back as I saw an open window to the house's basement. We all gazed at each other for several seconds of quietness. We all had the same idea that it was Paul that piped up. I say we go in, he demanded. I looked to Lori for her thoughts. Screw it, she said in a laughing tone. Without thinking, we marched toward the window. Paul, being the most eager of the three, he made his way in first. It was a smaller window, but just enough room to make our way in. I heard a thud as he dropped to the ground. You good, man? I said, squinting into the dark basement. Yeah, come on down, he yelled from the echoey room. I made my way in, followed by Lori. A fright came over me as I tried to gather my surroundings. We were actually in this creepy old lady's house. This was so crazy. A long light bulb flickered on in the center of the concrete room. Paul had found the light switch. Oh, thank God, Lori exclaimed. A quick tour of the basement area showed nothing much. It was mostly empty aside from a few boxes and old furniture. We found the stairwell and made our way up. We were in luck, as while lights were few and far between, the electricity was still on. As we made it to the first floor, I felt a resignation as I assumed the upper levels were going to offer even more mediocrity. I was wrong. I was so wrong. We entered the living room area. What stared back at us gave all three of us a shock. Dolls. Hundreds and hundreds of dolls littered the entire room. These things weren't just in the windows. The entire place was filled with them. All of them mangled and deformed in their own unique ways. Every single doll had its eyes cut out, leaving only two black voids staring back at us. This was terrifying. I jumped in fright as Paul yelled, breaking the silence. What in the hell is going on here? This lady was some kind of weird hoarder. I guess, man, I said as I panned the room. We continued walking while stepping over doll after doll. We made it down the hallway to the kitchen. At least I think there was a kitchen underneath the blanket of dolls. I think we should leave now. Lori said while folding her arms in discomfort. Paul clicked his tongue in disappointment and glared at her. No, man. I think she's right. Let's go, I said sternly. You can go if you want to. I'm going to explore a bit. This is crazy, he replied as he continued his way to the next room. We wished him luck and turned back toward the living room and stairway to the basement. As we approached the top of the stairs, something happened that terrified me to the core. The loudest scream I've ever heard filled the entirety of the house. It was a blood-curdling scream of terror from a female. Lori grabbed me in a hug with a frightened yelp. What the hell was that? I said, trying to keep my voice down, realizing someone else was here. I don't know, but I say Paul is on his own. If he doesn't want to leave after hearing that, it's on him, she whispered, holding me tighter. I nodded, and we began our trek down the stairs to get out of this terror house. 
As we approached the halfway point of the stairs, we were once again startled by a door slamming behind us. We looked at each other in confusion. There was no door at the top of the stairway before. We stared at each other in concern. We looked up as the single hanging light bulb began to flicker. Another startle hit us as yet another door slamming shut was heard. This time it was at the bottom of the stairs. What the hell is going on here? I said as I felt my voice break with every word. Lori simply stared at the door in fright. I put my hand on her back to guide her down the rest of the way. We arrived at the now closed door. I turned the knob to open it. It swung open. And to our horror, more stairs. Another flight of stairs continued with the basement at the bottom. I can't do this. Let's go, Lori yelled, grabbing my hand. We proceeded to the bottom of the new set of stairs. I almost tripped. I almost tipped over as the light bulb flickered off. I grabbed Lori immediately. It was pitch black. We had to continue, though. We carefully took one step at a time as to not fail. We continued blindly with one hand outstretched. Ouch! I yelled as I stubbed my finger into a solid surface. We'd reached the door. I slowly turned the doorknob. Horror coursed through me at what I was seeing. We were back in the living room. Dolls were strewn across the room, all blank and emotionless with those black, cold eyes. Lori began crying as I held her tighter. We have to find Paul, I said almost involuntarily. We proceeded in the direction Paul had gone. The long hallway led us to two more rooms as well as the staircase upstairs. Both rooms were filled with knickknacks and old furniture. Oh, and of course, more dolls. As if we weren't freaked out enough, the dolls gave us a lifeless, terrifying gaze as we made our way through the house. Paul? Paul? Lori yelled at the staircase. We made our way up, hoping not to have another staircase incident. Luckily, nothing happened yet. Paul, are you up here? Paul! Lori continued her jittery pleas as to get his attention. Nothing. I'd say let's split up, but I've seen way too many horror movies to know that's not a good idea, I said in an attempt to lighten the mood. The fright was too deep, though. We continued our search for several more minutes in an eerie silence. As we approached yet another room, I heard something behind us. I turned around, and in the unwell-lit hallway, I saw Paul. Standing there, just standing there. I could barely make out his face. It was shadowed, but... I saw his expression. He was staring with a smile. A smile bigger than I've ever seen him make. His eyes glared at us with an almost evil-looking intent. Paul? Is that you? What are you doing? Let's get the hell out of here. Lori looked back as well. I could see the look of confusion paired with fright on her face from the corner of my eye. I began walking towards him. With an almost inhuman speed, Paul ran quickly into one of the bedrooms. 
I looked at Lori in fright. I had to get my friend out of here. I walked toward the room and peered in. Paul was gone. A bed covered in those damn dolls was all that filled the room. I walked inside with Lori behind me. I'm 100% sure he ran in there, but he's nowhere to be seen. We turned to leave, but we were suddenly stopped by the now-closed door. No slam this time, just a closed door. I wasn't having it anymore. I quickly opened the door. Lori fell to her knees and began sobbing. The door led us back to the living room. And the same dolls stared back at us. I don't know what... I stopped mid-sentence as I looked back at Lori. She was crouched down and sobbing in the living room. I looked back at the other side of the door, another living room. We were stuck between two identical rooms. I grabbed Lori's wrist and began searching through the living room for anything I could do to bust one of the windows and make our escape. At the edge of the room, that same old wooden chair I saw from the outside sat. I stomped my way over, kicking dolls out of my way in anger. I grabbed the chair and immediately began smashing it against the window. I grabbed the chair and immediately began smashing it against the window I had originally peeked into when we arrived. It was working. The window began to crack and eventually shattered. I looked down to the ground to prepare for our escape. I... No words can accurately explain the fright. That came over me. What I witnessed as I turned back to Lori was horrific. A slimy, green, deformed thing stared back at me. Its pale green, bulging skin was glistening in the little light there was as it reached out to me with its limbs that seemed to be bent and broken in different angles. It let out a gurgled moan as it began towards me. I let out a primal yell and began to run. I didn't make it far before I tripped over the chair I used to smash the window. The creature made its way onto the top of me and I began screaming in that same gurgled voice. Moisture from its head dripped onto my face as I yelled in terror. I could see its skin bubbling under the deformations as it attacked. Babe! Babe! I heard Lori yell. I opened my eyes and slid back, hitting my head against the wall monster was gone. Lori looked at me out of confusion and fright. What? <laughs> Who? I frantically said, not knowing what to actually say. I don't know what happened. You went over to that chair and just sat in it. A little bit later, you began just freaking out on the ground and pulling out your hair. What happened? I didn't want to tell her what I'd just seen. I wiped tears from my eyes and stood up. We have to keep trying to get out of here. I had enough. We shuffled through more dolls to reach the stairway to the basement. The stairway that scared us so much, but we had to try. I shook my head as the stairway was blocked by a door. 
I opened it up with Lori clutching my arm. I stared in defeat as I was looking into the upstairs bedroom Paul had darted into. Dolls and that same bed that had greeted us before. As if to say, you're not going anywhere. I walked into that room with my head down. I leaned against one of the bedposts and let out a sigh. Lori cleared some of the dolls to make a spot on the bed and slumped down. There was several minutes of silence. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something on a nightstand. It was a book. I don't know why, but I moved to check it out. Helen Higgins was written on the front. It was a diary. I took it over toward Lori, who was still sitting on the bed with her face cupped in her hands. It seemed very far-fetched that this old lady clearly knew the house. Maybe the diary would offer information on how to leave it. It started out as any diary would, talking about her day, people she would interact with, etc. After a few minutes of reading, it got far worse. The beginning seemed to be when she was in her early 20s, with the later excerpt being decades later. Her ramblings became more incoherent as the pages flipped. Toward the end is when her entries became much darker. Her ramblings became much more disturbing as she spoke of people watching her from the windows trying to get into the house. She would yell and scream at them to go away, but they persisted for years. Several more entries later, a few excerpts gave me an insight into her strange behaviors. Yes. After a lot of research, I finally found out how to get rid of these damn intruders. They're not welcome here, and they will know it. The dolls. The dolls will work. Scary. I'll make them all scary. And the evil trespassers will not want in. More dolls. More dolls to keep them away. Yes. They will know they can't come in. They will lose interest in my house. In me. Not working. The book said it would work. Those people are still getting in. Why aren't they afraid? Mistakes. I've made mistakes. No. They live in them. The very thing that was supposed to keep them out is where they dwell. I invited them in without knowing. I found my old diary. I missed you. It's been decades. I've lived with my demons in seclusion. I hate them. They hate me. They haunt me when I'm awake. They haunt me when I'm asleep. They're evil. They delight in torturing my mind. I'm so glad I found your diary. You're all I have now. I covered my mouth in shock as I read the last entry. No more. It will end. Thank you, my diary, for being there for me. Today will be my last. My tortures will finally be over. Only blank pages followed. I carefully put the diary back on the nightstand as I looked over at Lori. She seemed to be catatonic. Lori, babe, I'm going to get us out of here, I said, attempting to add confidence to my voice. She continued steering forward. I lifted my head up as I realized something was happening. From the walls of the room, I heard voices. What seemed like hundreds and hundreds of voices were emanating from all four walls. There were so many, I couldn't understand what they were saying, but they were getting louder. I covered my ears as they continued their ramblings at us. I looked up at Lori, who was still staring ahead with no emotion. 
just as suddenly as the voices began, they stopped. I clenched my teeth in anger. Without a word, I grabbed Lori's wrist and began to lead her out. No, no, I can't, she said, sobbing. Lori, I'm getting us out of here. No matter how much of this damn maze we have to go through, I will get you home, I insisted. She wiped the tears from her eyes and quickly nodded. I was just glad to have had even a little bit of my girl back. We proceeded out into the hallway. I felt a strength in me as I was determined to get through this and get us back to safety. My strength faded quickly, though. As I looked left and right into the hallway to determine our next moves, something was staring at us. At the end of the hall, a silhouette of a man was just standing there. The shadowy form was dressed in an old-fashioned outfit. He was not from our time, dressed in an old dust coat and top hat. We stared at each other for several seconds as I contemplated what to do next. His face was pure black, but from the emptiness I saw a toothy smile begin to form. No eyes, no features, just a grin is all that looked back at me. I shook my head and darted towards the stairs with Lori. We made it down to the living room. As if everything we'd gone through wasn't enough, we were met with more stares. The dolls, those damn dolls were staring at us. We stood in silence as we looked around in terror. Deformed and mangled faces glared at us as we slowly proceeded toward the stairway. When we entered the stairwell and began our descent, I would say I prepared myself for whatever horrors these evil spirits that dwell here had for us, but... That was impossible. To my astonishment, nothing. No twists and turns, no voices or screams. We'd made it to the basement. A look of excitement was on Lori's face as we stared at the open window we had climbed into to start this nightmare. Apprehension fell over me as I wondered if this could be another cruel trick. So we continued to stare in disbelief. Loud, heavy footsteps came hurtling down the stairs. Damn it, go, go! I ordered Lori. We hastily climbed out the window to avoid whatever was stomping down those stairs towards us. We both crawled on all fours through the dead leaves and twigs toward the backyard wall. I turned toward the window with my back flat against the concrete wall. My eyes were wide open as I stared. The window slowly closed, creaked shut. With a soft clicking sound, the window closed and we were free from this horror. We walked back to our house with our heads hung down. Lori continued her sobbing as I held her. As we sat down on our living room couch, I began sobbing as well, but we were safe. We broke our lease and moved out as quickly as possible. We could not stand even being near that house. The events of that day were four decades ago. I still have nightmares from the brief time that I was there. Lori was never the same. I've remained with her, trying to help her recover, but what happened to us was far too scarring. In an almost face-your-fears type of move, I returned to the neighborhood the day. The house, that house of dolls, was still there. Dolls filled the window just as they had 40 years ago. The house was more overgrown with foliage and decrepit as ever. 
A group of children on bicycles pulled up, inquiring as to why I was just staring at this house. We chatted for a few about the house, but I did not want to tell them my story. Apparently, Miss Higgins was a member of a very rich family that owned the house. I guess it was just another page in the book, as they'd all but forgotten to let it rot. Although the kids did inform me of a resident in the house, he can be seen sometimes, blabbering to himself and yelling at kids that pass by. The local kids have named him Crazy Old Paul. <laughs>